Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. That's Psalm 125, which along with Psalm 124 and 126 are the Psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, October the 4th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are moving forward into a new book today. We are going to be in Micah's prophecy, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Now, Micah um, was a contemporary of both Isaiah and Hosea. So he's going to prophesy primarily, ultimately, to that southern kingdom, to the kingdom of Judah. But it's going to be both, but he sent more to Judah, whereas Hosea was sent more to the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, Jacob, uh, Samaria. All those those are synonyms or metonyms for, um, for the northern kingdom. So, and then we're also going to be in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, and then in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 23, verses 12 to 24. So, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So, he's, he's going to prophesy to the northern and the southern kingdom. But we're told specifically that he appears during the reigns of these three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. So he's primarily a southern prophet, but he's got something to say to both. He says, here, you peoples, all of you, both kingdoms, pay attention to earth and all that's in it. So not just the two kingdoms. I'm telling you, everybody needs to hear this. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. His place is not the temple. His place is in heaven. And he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Why? What, is the, what does it mean that he treads on the high places of the earth? That's the places where other gods are worshipped. You, you go to high places because the, the belief there is you're getting closer to God by going to these high places. And so a lot of pagan worship took place on high places. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a deep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So he's speaking here to the northern kingdom. That's what he means. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What's the transgression? Yeah, What's the transgression? And what's the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? In other words, they've taken the high place, Jerusalem, or they've taken Jerusalem and they've made it like the other high places. They're doing pagan worship in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord. So that's his complaint, is, is that in Samaria they made two golden calves that they would worship because they wanted to make sure that the people didn't go back down to Jerusalem so they wanted to keep them separate, but he says, also at Jerusalem, they have brought in pagan practices into the worship there. Neither is innocent. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. 
All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So sort of ashes to ashes from, you know, from dust you were taken to dust you shall return. That's exactly the language that's used here for all the wealth and all the, the gods, the idols, all that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, nope, it's going to be just completely laid waste in the same way as, as from dust you were taken to dust you shall return. In other words, this stuff is ultimately going to prove to be completely worthless completely worthless because you've prostituted yourselves with other gods. He says, therefore, I'm going to destroy you utterly. He's speaking primarily there to Samaria. I'm going to destroy Samaria, that northern kingdom, and it's going to be destroyed pretty quickly and pretty soon uh, after Micah's prophecy. And it's, it is going to be ultimately completely destroyed and the people taken into exile and dispersed among the nations that made up the kingdom of Assyria. And they're supposed to blend in with the nations, and they did. They never came back. These people did not. He says, for this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. So while he, he Micah, is announcing God's judgment on the people, and he is therefore siding with God against the people by, by, by reciting God's accusation against the people, at the same time, he is aligning himself with the people and saying, because of this, I'm going to lament and wail. I'll go stripped and naked. I'll make lamentation with the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable, and it's come to Judah. It's reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So even though I'm prophesying against those people in the north, I'm still, my heart is still with them because I'm one of them. And, and that's the, the thing that I've said to you about prophets, about Abraham Joshua Heschel's statement, that they have to, a prophet has to align himself with God's righteousness, has to see things from God's perspective, has to communicate that to the people while at the same time interceding for the people, recognizing that he's just a man like they are. So he doesn't stand above the people. No, he stands with the people, but he also stands with God in this unique kind of relationship. And Micah, that's why he mourns, laments, wails, because he feels the pain of the people. And that's the reason Jesus' incarnation is so important, because he stands in that role, straddles those two spheres. He prays for us even while we sin against him on the cross. He aligns himself completely with God and God's mission on the earth. God's righteousness on the earth, but at the same time, he, as a man, aligns himself with sinful humanity and prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's what Micah's doing here. He, he's not making light work of sin. He says that, that it deserves this. I see this now from God's perspective, and this sin deserves judgment. But at the same time, I mourn for the people who experience that judgment. And that's the way, the attitude we need to take into understanding. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. They're not always necessarily going to be your enemies. Let's look at it that way. But but what he says is, love your enemies. Don't gloat over their misfortune. The, the angels wanted, I mean, this is Jewish lore now. This is from the Midrash. Or, and, um, so it, the, the angels, it said, wanted to celebrate the drowning of the Egyptians in the sea because they had drowned the, the, the Hebrew babies. 
in the sea, and they had oppressed God's people, and God stopped them from rejoicing over the death of those people because they were people created in his image. We need to hear that. We need to understand that, particularly in these times when, when, when it's easy to demonize our, our uh, people who disagree with us because they see us as their enemies and they've demonized us. We can't be those people. We've got to have compassion on our enemies because we recognize that we've been given a revelation from God that they haven't received or they've been unwilling to receive. Doesn't mean they'll always be unwilling to receive it. After Jesus had finished his sayings, this is the gospel now, obviously, in the hearing of the people, the the parables that we talked about yesterday, uh, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. So even though they haven't put their trust in Jesus, they believe that he's a healer, and they believe that that he can do something about this this centurion situation. And because they believe that he can do something about it, now they're convincing him or trying to convince him that he should do it he's worthy because he loves our people and he's the one who built the synagogue for us and jesus went with them when he was not far from the house the centurion sent friends saying to him the centurion didn't go he sent other people he never sees jesus the centurion never has any contact with jesus lord don't trouble yourself for i'm not worthy so he he sees himself rightly he says i'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. His humility, this Roman centurion, shows this incredible humility in saying, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. In fact, I didn't consider myself worthy to even come before you. Now, think of the difference here between something we looked at not too long ago with Naaman, who comes to the prophet, Elisha, and he gets angry because Elisha won't come out and see him. Because he considered himself worthy. Now contrast that with the centurion and his humility before the Lord. What he had heard about Jesus convinced him that he wasn't worthy for Jesus to come under his roof. In the same way, Peter confessed that he needed Jesus to go away because he was unworthy to be with him because he was a sinful man. This centurion shows great faith in Jesus, but not just faith. Because the, 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 the Jews that came had faith that Jesus could heal. This guy says, I know who you are, and I'm not worthy because of who you are. Not because of what you can do, but because of who you are. Now, who you, what you do shows me who you are. But he has great faith in Jesus in two different ways. One is that he can heal. Two is, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. But say the word, he says, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes into my servant. Do this, and he does it. What he says is, I understand authority. I'm a man under authority, and I believe you have supreme authority over this situation. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So now she's extremely vulnerable because the, the um, inheritance laws 
what went from the, the, the male side. And so she stands to be very vulnerable economically and otherwise going forward because she's, she's lost her son, her only son, and she's already lost her husband. She's a widow, so she's extremely vulnerable. She's, she doesn't have any inheritance of her own to claim. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So there's a great crowd with Jesus and a considerable crowd from the town. And when the Lord saw her, they were carrying him out of the, the town because you didn't bury in the town, by the way. So when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now, that doesn't sound like a compassionate thing to say to a widow who is mourning the loss of her only son. Then he, Jesus, came up and touched the bier, the the, the the podium kind of a thing that the that the man was on, and the bearers, the people who were carrying it, like pallbearers, stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. I'll bet it did. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So this looks like something Elijah or Elisha would do, because they did do these things. They raised sons of widows from the dead, brought them back to life. So they see that comparison clearly here with Jesus. Now, this miracle is not considered to be as great as the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, and the answer is why. Well, because Jewish burial practices where you wanted to get them buried before the sun went down. So, so once somebody died, you buried them quickly. Lazarus, remember, was in the tomb four days. So it's a different kind of resurrection or, or, or resuscitation. But this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. So, so the word is spreading all the way into Judea. They're, they're up in Galilee, here in Capernaum, in Nain. And, and then the word, however, because this great crowd that's following Jesus, that spreads to all these places. And, and so that's good. Well, at the same time, it's bringing yet more and more attention to, to Jesus to the people who hate him and want to destroy him. Because it's, it's moving from the north to the south. This word about Jesus is, and the south is where Jerusalem is and where, the, where his enemies are. <clears throat> Remember Paul yesterday, had, had, they, they attempted to try him, and he divided the people along the lines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and escaped their judgment, and the, the tribune took him out of that because he couldn't figure out what was going on, and he was afraid they were going to hurt Paul without giving him a trial. So now, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So they made an oath to the Lord. They ha- they have to keep that oath. But what is the oath? They're not going to eat or drink until they kill Paul. And is that an oath you would take before the Lord? It seems a very strange thing, but they think they're doing this for the glory and the honor of God. They were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they, then they went to the chief priests and the elders. So these 40 people get together. They make this oath. They say, we're going to kill Paul. They go to the chief priests and elders, who they obviously presume are going to be completely on their side, and say, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we're ready to kill him before he comes near. In other words, you know, hey, we'd like to have a second shot at the prosecution here. And so if you just bring him down to us, we promise this time we'll behave. And we will get to the root of the matter, and you'll see why it is we're so upset. But don't worry about it. You just tell the Tribune that, and we'll kill Paul before he comes near. I mean, these guys 
the, the chief priests and the scribes have already made a deal to kill Jesus and acknowledged that the money they gave to Judas was blood money. And here, here now, they're willing to let people take an oath to commit murder. And they, they feel like it's okay because they consider Paul to be a blasphemer. So you can put a blasphemer to death. So they're, they're willing to make this plot for Paul to be killed because they're, they're absolutely certain that Romans aren't going to carry out the death sentence that they think Paul deserves. So the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions, who would have been an underling for the tribune, and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one what you, that you have informed me of these things. So I don't want, I appreciate the information. Don't let anybody know that you've told me this because that would then expose the entire plot, blah, blah, blah. So he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So it's, it's pretty early evening. It's before midnight. Um, it's probably nine o'clock. Um, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He says, look, you know, what we got to do is that they're, these people are trying to use me and make me look bad, and they're going to pull this thing off, and they're going to kill this prisoner who has not been tried, and I don't find any fault in him under Roman law. I don't know what's causing the Jews so much heartburn, but they want to kill him, and so we got to get him out of Dodge. And so we're going to do it under cover of darkness. We're going to ship him out there. But he's surrounded by 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. I mean, that's how much, how seriously this guy took the threat against Paul's life. He puts a he enormous, well-armed guard around Paul to take him down to Caesarea so that he can go before Felix, the governor. And he puts Paul on a horse in order to do this thing. That way Paul can get away quickly if need be. So he took the threat seriously. And he acted in accord with what the information that he had was and provided safe transport for Paul to get down to where there could be a trial uh, by, by uh, an elected—well, not elected, by an appointed official who, who had the power to do whatever needed to be done. We, we need to have the kind of faith Paul had to believe God spoke, therefore I will listen and I will stand in that and I will not waver in what I believe. We, we need to have the kind of faith the centurion had that says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant will be healed. We need to have that kind of faith. And if we do, then we're going to see the Lord do great things. We need to also, though, remind ourselves to have the attitude Micah had toward the people he prophesied, quote, against, that he was heartbroken that judgment should fall on anyone. And we need to take that same attitude. We need to take that same compassion, and we need to put it into action.